0: Hello and welcome to our BMJ clinical podcast. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. I help look after BMJ best practice and BMJ learning. BMJ best practice is our point-of-care clinical decision support tool that takes you quickly to the latest evidence-based information whenever and wherever you need it. The content is continually updated, it is evidence-based, The evidence comes from Cochrane Clinical Answers and it provides practical and actionable information that will help at the point of care. And BMJ Learning is our online, interactive and multimedia learning resource. This podcast is about botulism. You should learn a bit about how to recognise, report and refer affected patients. You should also be able to better answer patient questions at the end. And to help us learn about these things, I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Claudia Kraft. Claudia is an emergency physician, formerly a full time family physician. She has practiced in the Canadian Arctic and sub Arctic, first in Iqaluit, Nunavut, and now in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, where she lives with her partner Steve, their son Henry, and their husky, whose name we are not yet sure of. So, Claudia, it would be great if you could start off by telling us a little bit about your experience with botulism.
1: Sure. The dog's name is Lola. (laughs) Um, So my experience with botulism is that early in my training uh, as a resident, one of my mentors uh, brought to me some information about illnesses or presentations that would be more likely that I would see in the Arctic uh, rather than where I had trained in southern Canada. Um, And among the list of of illnesses was botulism. So early on, somebody uh, wanted to make sure that I knew how to recognize uh, this otherwise rather rare illness. Sure enough, early in my practice actually, I did uh, meet somebody who presented with botulism And over the years have accumulated case reports or stories amongst my colleagues uh, across the Arctic. What several of us remarked upon was that there are frequently delays both in making the diagnosis um, and in administering the most appropriate treatment. And so we decided that we would pool our collective experiences, which even amongst uh, several physicians is only a handful of cases, um, and we decided to put together a case report uh, and mini review um, to try to help our colleagues, um, both in the Arctic and in the referral centers down south.
0: Great, thank you. And what exactly is it about the Arctic that um, attracts botulism, or is is there an increased prevalence of? Uh, patients with botulism in the Arctic, and if, if so, why?
1: In coastal Arctic communities in particular, uh, the rates of what is otherwise a very rare disease um, are much, much higher in the order in some communities of 1,500 times the incidence that might be seen in southern Canada. This is mainly because in Coastal uh, waters in the sediments of the ocean waters, um, the botulism spores are ubiquitous. And so, any marine mammals that are butchered on shore or in that coastal environment, as well as fish products, have a very high probability of having at least some contamination with the botulism spores. So people who are relying in part on traditional foods or foods from those waters um, are likely to be consuming products that have some of the spores. This isn't necessarily a problem unless those spores have an opportunity to germinate, but at temperatures over four degrees Celsius, which is common in the summer in the Arctic coastal areas, the botulism spores might have an opportunity to to germinate particularly if food storage occurs above that temperature that's not to say that you can't have botulism in the south as we know particularly common in southern communities would be home preserving or home canning foods if uh, strict food safety protocols are not adhered to
0: okay thank you that's very helpful So, so tell us how would you recognize an affected patient
1: Patients provide a lot of the information on history, although the items that they'll describe are not necessarily specific to a botulism case. So often they'll come in with uh, complaining of dry mouth, um, possibly blurry vision or double vision, Um, and this may progress to muscle weakness, often first in the upper extremities, um, bilaterally and symmetrically. Um, and descending uh, progressively to involve the entire body. Shortness of breath uh, becomes quite prominent as the uh, muscles of the diaphragm and respiratory system become paralyzed. And so um, patients that are affected can very, very quickly progress to respiratory failure. The literature describes gastrointestinal symptoms preceding Some of the other symptoms. In our cases, we haven't found that to be as prominent. In other settings, that may be one of the first symptoms. And in most of the cases that I'm aware of in the Arctic, um, there's often pretty pronounced autonomic instability resulting in hypotension that can be quite marked um, without compensatory tachycardia. So the patient may maybe a shock as well.
0: And in light of those symptoms, what tests would
1: you request? So I think any patient presenting with acute neurologic symptoms or severe respiratory distress would usually get some basic blood work um, because, of course, more common diagnoses such as stroke or uh, sepsis, or pneumonia, would be top of mind with someone presenting with some of those symptoms. Um, So most of these patients, I think, would get some basic blood work, uh, looking for inflammatory markers, uh, chest X-ray. If it's available, a CT scan um, might also be considered to rule out intracranial problems. But once some of the more common presentations have been ruled out, or once botulism has made its way onto the differential diagnosis, um, then... Um, more specific testing looking for botulism toxin um, can be arranged. So specifically that would be serum samples uh, looking for botulism toxin. It could be gastric aspirate, Um, it could be stool samples. Um, And if there's a suspicious food item um, then certainly a sample of that food item should also be collected uh, and sent for testing. What's important to know though, is that there can be quite a long delay between uh, the patient presenting and those samples being collected and an answer being available. So in our context, um, those samples have to be sent to a central laboratory thousands of kilometers away. And so, in terms of the immediate management decisions, um, those those samples are are rarely informing decisions for the first or second point of care for that patient.
0: Okay, and while you're investigating or after you've made the diagnosis, what isolation measures should you take? Or are isolation measures needed in patients with botulism? Um,
1: Yes and no. I think um, universal precautions, so gloves, uh, a mask if the patient is vomiting or if one is intubating a patient and might be exposed to pulmonary secretions are certainly appropriate. Um, But the nature of the poisoning is that We're not worried about an infectious agent. We're worried about preformed toxin. So as long as we're not ingesting large quantities of contaminated uh, patient bodily fluids, um, then this is not like a bacterial infection where we're worried about an infectious agent or the spores germinating in the healthcare provider. Now, there's another dimension, which is the public health side of things, and of course, that part is extraordinarily important. Um, we do want to act very, very quickly once we have a suspicion of botulism to involve public health officials to do, I, I guess it's source control. So um, that really is about trying to prevent other people from ingesting contaminated food.
0: So, so that, that's very helpful. Um And so we've discussed reporting. What about referral? Um, Do you typically need to refer affected patients? If so, how urgently? Where should you refer?
1: So in terms of urgency, the progression of uh, clinical botulism uh, can be extremely rapid. And patients within a matter of hours can um, be in complete respiratory failure due to respiratory muscle paralysis. So if a patient uh, is suspected to have botulism, uh, it's extremely important that they have urgent access to a center that can provide respiratory support. So the first order of business is transporting a patient somewhere where they can have in the short term, perhaps bag mask ventilation, um, but ideally intubation and ventilation in an ICU type setting because uh, supportive care uh, is the essential first step for uh, preventing mortality from botulism. The second part is um, the availability of the specific treatment, which is the botulism antitoxin. So the antitoxin product is frequently not available in local community settings. In canada there are various regional stockpiles in many countries the the situation is similar the antitoxin may be stockpiled uh, in a central location so either the patient needs to be moved to a place where the antitoxin is available or the antitoxin more commonly needs to be moved to where the patient is and this process can certainly take a bit of time
0: okay and and while all this is happening i'm sure patients and their relatives will no doubt be very concerned. What what do patients and their relatives typically want to know and what, what advice should you give them?
1: I think the most common question, of course, is are they going to recover? And if so, how long is that going to take? The answer to that is, like many things in medicine, not always completely clear. Um, most patients who receive timely, supportive care will recover. So the case fatality rate is about uh, 5%. Um, and it appears that that 5% is largely where the diagnosis is delayed or missed or where supportive care is not promptly administered. So most patients, once you've made the diagnosis, are in a really good position. They may be uh, requiring ICU level of care um, for for several days uh, or in some cases weeks. And so, of course, any ICU-type intervention comes with lots of complications, and most of those, most of the time, are treatable and reversible. But overall, the prognosis, uh, once once a diagnosis is being considered, is very, very good. Often families are um, very worried that they may too um, have been exposed to botulism. First and foremost, it's important to make sure that they know generally what symptoms should prompt them to seek uh, urgent care and and where and how and when to do that. If there is a specific food that we're worried about, we of course do want them to provide that to the public health officials um, for testing and also um, so that no one else will ingest it. And then in terms of general advice, the the most important one is that for uh, marine mammals or fish products, they must be stored uh, at four degrees or lower uh, Celsius. And then for people that are home canning, uh, I usually provide uh, resources. There are many on the web. There's some particularly good ones from the Department of Agriculture, I believe, in the United States, and the Center for Disease Control, also in the U.S.
0: Okay, great. And and back to diagnosis. Obviously, there's a a number of differential diagnoses there as as well. How can you tell? botulism from other common differentials and what are those common differentials?
1: So we touched briefly on stroke. That is certainly something that gets considered when a patient presents with diplopia or ptosis so drooping eyelids and double vision. Um, They often will have dysarthria, um, so difficulty speaking as well as difficulty swallowing or dysphagia um, or motor weakness. What's different about botulism, or what helps to cue one to thinking about it, um, is of course that this is symmetrical, um, progressive, rapidly, not in a stepwise fashion, um, and then progresses to respiratory failure, which in an otherwise alert, um, cognitively intact patient. So it certainly bears considering stroke um, and if it's available, a CT scan would certainly be something that one might consider performing. But the overall clinical picture um, points to something being a little bit different. Also on the differential, um, of course, for someone presenting with acute respiratory failure would be um, all of the pulmonary or cardiac diagnoses. Um, but again, there are some specific features. So the cranial nerve abnormalities, the lack of fever, the usually lack of uh, inflammatory markers uh, in terms of laboratory analyses, um, the lack of sometimes hypotension or tachycardia, um, again, make one suspect that something a little bit different is going on. In terms of neurologic diagnoses, myasthenia gravis is Or Lambert Eaton syndrome are often considered, and um, at the referral centers, the neurology team will typically be involved in trying to uh, determine whether that may be explaining part of the patient's symptoms, as well as a variant of Guillain Barre syndrome. Important things that can help distinguish some of the neurologic diagnoses would be um, lack of deep tendon reflexes um, in patients with botulism and the presence of diplopia or um, ocular muscle paralysis, as well as the presence of midriasis or dilation of the pupils, um, which can help to distinguish between some of those diagnoses. Certainly, uh, in my experience, patients who are referred to tertiary centers where there are um, neurologists um, sometimes also undergo antibody testing for autoimmune Uh, diseases as well as uh, EMGs to try to better clarify the nature of the mechanism of nerve paralysis.
0: Okay, that's great because it's the common differentials that we're really interested in. And tell us, what are the common pitfalls in the diagnosis and management of patients with botulism?
1: I think the most common pitfall is, like with anything that's extremely rare, failing to consider the diagnosis in the first place. This seems to be very, very common in when we look back at case series of patients who ultimately were diagnosed with botulism. I think um, getting some diagnostic momentum uh, for one of the alternate diagnoses um, can really delay uh, the appropriate treatment for a patient. As with many things in emergency medicine or primary care, if we initially recognize a pattern that triggers us to think about something like stroke or pneumonia, we can easily begin to commit to that diagnosis, even when the evidence is pulling us in a different direction or nudging us to consider something else. And so uh, it is not unusual for patients with botulism um, to receive a different alternate diagnosis uh, for the first hours or days of their care. The other thing that we've seen in many of the cases is um, delays in administering the antitoxin. So even once the diagnosis has been considered and even when it is high on the differential, um, it seems that there can be a lot of hesitancy to um, administer the antitoxin. In some cases, that's because uh, people think that they should wait for confirmatory testing, but of course, this can take several to many, many days before that result would be available. So a big take-home message that we'd like is as soon as botulism is considered to be the most likely or a highly probable diagnosis on clinical grounds, um, then steps should immediately be taken to obtain and administer antitoxin.
0: Okay, thank you. And last question from me, if you had one single piece of advice to give to healthcare professionals about the subject, what, what would it be?
1: Trust your instincts. If if a patient presents with something that could be botulism, even though other diagnoses are far more common, if if you think that it's just not quite fitting, it just doesn't seem to be Quite the right picture for pneumonia or stroke, then consider botulism. Uh, Consider it early and treat that patient as somebody who may rapidly deteriorate. So if that means transporting them or uh, consulting somebody who can assist with ventilation if they need it, then do that early um, and then advocate for the patient to receive botulism antitoxin as soon as possible um, once botulism is high on the differential or is the most likely diagnosis.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Kraft. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better recognize, report and refer affected patients. If you want to find out more, click in the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice or BMJ Learning and look at the botulism topic further. Thank you once again.